You're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Here on Theory and Practice, we interview people who are looking for big solutions and people who are creating powerful tools. We find the scientists asking the most interesting questions in the life sciences and the researchers in computer science who are building the machines to answer them. Today on the show, we'll hear from Eric Lander. He's the president and founding director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. So stay with us as we explore questions and solutions on theory and practice. So Anthony, I got a chance to sit down with Eric Lander, who is president and founding director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. That sounds awesome. I'm really excited to hear about the conversation. Yeah, so let's take a listen. The first question that we asked Eric was how he became interested in science. I'm a kid from Brooklyn, New York, born on Flappish Avenue, went to high school in Manhattan at Stuyvesant High School, and always loved mathematics. Went and did my undergraduate degree and my PhD in pure mathematics, and at some point, got interested in biology, and so drifted into biology just before the Human Genome Project was starting, and well, I've just been captivated by human genetics and genomics ever since. How did you make that transition? So you started out doing math, and you were pretty deep into that stuff, if I understand correctly. Algebraic combinatorics, yes. Well, you know, you can always tell these stories uh, as, as if they were fated in some way, but it was pretty much a random walk. I knew that I didn't want to do pure mathematics as a career. I love pure mathematics, but it was a little monastic for my taste, and I'm not a particularly good monk. (laughs) And so I wanted to do something a little more worldly and somehow talked my way into a position on the faculty of the Harvard Business School teaching managerial economics, of which I knew none. The switch from math to business school seems like either a random one or a big one. Well, it turns out that at the Harvard Business School, there was a a group called Managerial Economics, which was really decision analysis. And the wonderful mathematician Howard Rafa had created it, this whole field in the 1950s. And I met Howard, and over a really warm lunch, they offered me a position teaching managerial economics. And I said, that sounds interesting, and I did it. But of course, within a year or two, although I had fun teaching it, it was clear it wasn't the love of my life. And... I then, for a variety of accidents, got really interested in ideas around information and biology. Now, this was back in a day when, well, there just weren't computers in biology. The Whitehead Institute, right next door to the Broad Institute, where we are today, had just been built. And the original plans for it didn't even include any provision for a computer. And then they needed rooms for that. So that was... uh... Well, at the very last minute, they retrofitted a computer room. But this was what biology was like in the day. The idea was that the data you cared about was in pencil in your lab notebook, or probably in pen in your lab notebook. And the idea that you'd ever use data that had been generated by others and large quantities of it and that you'd need a computer, it it hadn't settled in in the field at all. But anyway, while teaching at the business school, I got interested in biology hung out in uh, a couple of laboratories doing fly genetics and worm genetics while still teaching. And then one day met a fantastic colleague at MIT, David Botstein, who had gotten really interested in problems in human genetics and developed a way to map the genes that underlie human diseases. 
And we had a great argument together. We got introduced and immediately fell to arguing. He's from the Bronx. <laughs> I'm from Brooklyn. That's the form of discourse between folks from these boroughs. And uh, we had such a great time. We got back the next day and argued more in the next day. And uh, I dropped everything else I was doing. My, my nematode worms grew mold. And uh, I started working on human genetics. And uh, within a year, the idea of a human genome project was floated. And it was, like, amazingly perfect. I knew mathematics. I knew some biology. And I'd even been at a business school, which was good for organizing enterprises. So in retrospect, it looked like ideal planning for getting involved in the Human Genome Project. Of course, in prospect, it was an utterly random walk. <laughs> so you were kind of uh, fiddling around just doing the next best thing. And then there's a large accumulation of great things kind of behind you. And then at one moment, this all kind of came It all together. fell together. I, I remember the afternoon it all fell together. But there was an head. afternoon where it was Well, clear. it was outside the seminar at MIT, room 10250. A colleague, Barbara Meyer, just introduced me and Botstein. And he, a yeast geneticist who had come up with these ideas in human genetics, had been longing for about five years to find some mathematician who spoke enough biology. And I, a mathematician who had learned to speak biology, was longing for a really interesting field to apply it to. And it was clear by the end of the day that oh, this was going to be a really great answer to my wanderings. That's pretty fantastic. And you've done more than wandering since. So maybe could you take us up to the present day? And Well, yeah. Um, you know, I, I got incredibly interested in how could you map the genes that underlie not simple genetic traits, what geneticists call Mendelian traits controlled by a single gene passed down in a family, but instead common complex diseases, heart disease, Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, things where many genes must work together, but nobody knew how. And what was interesting to me was how we could use the tools that you could hallucinate at that point, didn't yet have, to be able to unravel the genetic basis of these common diseases. And I sort of worked on that question theoretically for a couple of years, and it was clear now, it was clear then what to do, but we didn't have any of the tools. We would need a human genome project to do it. And so I got involved as uh, I, I created a human genome center here at MIT, and it ended up becoming a flagship of the whole Human Genome Project, and we generated tremendous amounts of genetic data and sequences and things. And um, when all that got done, it was finally time to start applying this to disease. And we did, and lots of fun things came. But what was even more exciting was in the course of the Human Genome Project, we also ended up with a collaborative community growing up here in Boston. We had young MD-PhDs from the hospitals, and we had computational scientists, and they were from all different institutions working together in a building a couple blocks from here. There was a former beer and popcorn warehouse for Fenway Park <laughs> that was repurposed into a human genome center. And uh, all these amazing collaborations between young people who saw a future, none of which were blessed in any way by the universities or the hospitals. So as the Human Genome Project was coming to a close, we had to figure out how to institutionalize this thing. And that's how this Broad Institute got born. It was an answer to how were we going to keep going with an amazing community of 
diverse scientists with a common interest in applying biological information to solving disease. I, so I didn't know that was the genesis of the bro, that there's already this great community. Oh, it wasn't yeah. willed into existence. It's this thing that grew. No, it only worked because when I went to MIT and Harvard and said, we should build this joint community to do this, I said, and by the way, here's a little map showing 56 collaborations that have grown up grassroots around town. And, you know, it's kind of working already. Shouldn't we make it respectable? And that was a much more convincing uh, argument to MIT and Harvard and still took about two and a half years to convince everybody to do it. And it took uh, Eli and Edie Broad coming on a Saturday morning near the end of the Human Genome Project and seeing this, this genome center buzzing with people and robots and conveyor belts and computer scientists. And they're saying, I, I hear you want to start some kind of an institute. Would you tell us more? And anyway, again, kind of miraculously and, and through this amazing random walk, all the pieces fell together of MIT, Harvard, a fabulous couple, and Eli and Edie Broad, these amazing people in town. I don't know that you could do this anyplace else. And even so, it still took a tremendous amount of luck. The a priori probability of everything falling together was vanishingly small, but it somehow did. And there's still an incredible amount of research that's happening at the Broad since the sequencing of the first human genome. Maybe could you tell us a bit about some of the milestone or landmark discoveries that, that happened here as a result of that community that was built up? Well, I mean, look, that first human genome was the world working together for 13 years to produce one human sequence at an overall all-in cost of $3 bucks. That was not going to be sustainable for the next 10,000 sequences, right? That would be about $30 trillion, which... You know, it's more than U.S. It's GDP. <laughs> well, you know, it'd be tough to get that kind of money. So what's been amazing is ways to extract information were developed, ways to read out millions of genetic variants cheaply, first for thousands of dollars. And today, if I want to read out a million genetic variants in your genome, it cost me 20 bucks to do that. And then sequencing, which was $3 billion, today... $700 or so. I think in the next four or five years, it'll get down to $100. I mean, you know, this is a decrease of many million fold in the course of 13, 14 years. And I don't know anything, even Moore's Law runs much slower than or that. Moore's Law is done. <laughs> well, Moore's Law is done. This isn't yet done. Yeah, this and is I, still I think going, we'll see $3 billion to 100 bucks. So it's pretty remarkable. It and is because remarkable. of that... It's, it's become possible to do this problem I was first interested in, find the basis of genetic disease. We had no idea what were the genes that might contribute to, say, schizophrenia. Today, by looking at more than 100,000 people, there are almost 250 regions of the human genome that we know contain genes that play a role. Similarly for type 2 diabetes, for Alzheimer's disease, for inflammatory bowel. In fact, there's more than 100,000 associations between particular regions of the human genome and particular traits. So there's a tremendous amount of genetic knowledge we could have never imagined. And of course, that's pointing us to what causes the diseases. That schizophrenia, at least some of it has to do with the pruning of synapses in the brain in late adolescence, it's clear. So for some of the diseases that you mentioned, their impact on society is primarily behavioral. 
right? Yeah. So these are genes that are influencing how a human being develops, influencing their brain, and then ultimately the behavior that, that they produce or how they react mm-hmm. to the world. And Cory Bargman has this phrase that I like. I'm just curious what you think about it, which is that genes don't produce behavior, the brain does. And there's a, a couple steps between there. So I'm just curious how you, how you react. I see you smiling. I'm curious what your well, thoughts are. You know, whatever part you want to focus on plays a role. You could say genes don't produce behavior, cells do. Cells don't produce behavior, brains do. Brains don't produce behavior, they only do it in coordination with an environment. I think all progress depends on being able to isolate a piece of the problem and nail it down so you can then look at the rest of the pieces. So from my point of view, understanding definitively what are genes that are involved is a first step up. But it's a perfect example that genes are not enough. The next step up is cells. So I'm as excited about the fact that at the Broad Institute today, there's the work of Aviv Regev, who's launched this human cell atlas project. It used to be the case that you couldn't read out the genetic expression pattern of a single cell. You could only take a hunk of tissue, million cells, grind them up, and kind of get the average. You know, the, the average um, expression pattern of a cell is about as interesting as the opinion of an average New Yorker. <laughs> you know, there's no average New Yorker. They all differ. Same for the cells. But four or five years ago, it became possible for the first time to read out individual cells. And so if a cell has 20,000 genes that, that are each expressed to a certain level, then a cell can be thought of as a vector of length 20,000 for the expression levels of each of these genes. And suddenly, your whole body is, is, can be thought of as trillions of cells, each one of which has its own expression vector in 20,000-dimensional space. And then cell types, what are they? Well, there are clusters in 20,000-dimensional space. And the development of an organism, what's that? Well, those are trajectories in 20,000-dimensional space. And so I think there's a second fabulous revolution. Just as the genes gave us what I might call a periodic table for biology, the cells are giving us another periodic table for biology. Beyond that, I think we're going to start talking soon about there being a finite number of programs Mm. that cells know how to run. See, when I first got involved in biology... I think it was fair to say everybody thought about biology as this infinite, unbounded frontier. I think increasingly we're recognizing that any organism, it's got a finite number of genes, it's got a finite number of cell types, it's got a finite number of programs, and we're going to know those. It's an enclosure. It doesn't mean we solve everything. It doesn't right, mean we cure right. all disease. But what it does mean is increasingly we say, how in the world did we ever think we were going to understand heart disease or schizophrenia or cancer without at least knowing all the parts and knowing all the cells and all the programs. There's this phrase, everything is physics or stamp collecting, um, Ah. in the sense that there are theories that let us predict into the future. And then there's things like periodic tables, which organize a lot of information. And it seems like these huge jumps in biology are taxonomies or ways of organizing. And they're not theories in the sense of the way that physics has theories. Right, right, right. And the physicists are very proud that they have these kind of universal theories. (laughs) And you could, as a physicist, turn up your nose at biology and say, oh, this is stamp collecting. This is just one solution evolution came up with. And if you were to heat up the entire universe, cool it down and start over, 
maybe life would look totally different and the pathways and cells would look totally different and we wouldn't have these organs and these diseases. And therefore, the physicists would say, it's uninteresting. Hmm. Of course, on the other hand, uh, it's us. We're here. These are our bodies. This is what evolution has given us. In what sense is that uninteresting? So a physicist, I suppose, and of course we're talking about our cartoon physicist here, says, I'm only interested in things that would be universal under all possible circumstances. Thus, the physicist is uninterested in all of life, as how it actually played out, uninterested in politics today as it played out, because none of those things are universal. I think it's a kind of limited view. And of course, I'm teasing physicists right. by saying it. But it's important to say that I respect that point of view. It just kind of strips away a lot of really cool stuff like, for example, 7.7 7 billion people on the planet and their health or disease. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of going back to the single cell sequencing, giving us new views into perhaps the programs that cells run. I don't even really know how to ask the question, but in the early days of just sequencing DNA, the data must have been really, really difficult to acquire. And you might have had a lot of doubt around whether or not you're getting the correct answer. I don't know a lot about single cell sequencing, but I know that the quality of data that's coming off of the machines that you can buy or that you can build is improving rapidly, mm-hmm. but it's not foolproof yet. No. I mean, just like anything. Nothing's foolproof. If you could just take yourself back to a time when a technology was just being born and it wasn't clear that it was going to work. I mean, that's got to be kind of nerve-wracking to, to know that you're about to get something that's really profound, but not know whether or not you're going to be able to get it with the way that you're currently attacking it. Yes, Well, in fact, that's the experience in biology over almost all of the last 30 years, that if you want to ask the most interesting question, you're operating at the bleeding edge, not the cutting edge. It's the bleeding edge, and you're bleeding. Mm. So it means that when you're trying to collect sequence data or genotype data, it's more expensive than you'd like. It's error-prone. You have to be suspicious of it. You have to build in all sorts of checks But you get kind of good at it. You say, oh, um, how am I going to make sure that these genotypes are correct? Well, there are a whole lot of sanity checks you apply to it. You learn to be your own worst enemy on the data. Alternatively, you can just go to the beach for five years, come back when it's all working smoothly, (laughs) but then all the interesting things have been answered. So it turns out that the hard things at every one of these steps often are no longer interesting because we figured out how to do them well now. Mm-hmm. So getting to answer questions of first impression, the first time you can kind of look inside a cell, the first time you can make inferences in a certain way, those are really cool. And it takes a certain kind of both theoretical and engineering approach both because the theory is beautiful and the data are not. So then I'm curious how someone that's computational gets into that loop. Because at least in the machine learning world, a common way to operate is download someone else's data set and try to beat the state of the art by X percent. And that's clearly not how things are operating no. in biology when the goal is to discover something new, right. or to explain something. Right. So if you've got the itch to be involved with discovery, like not methodological development, but with discovering what's true about life on planet Earth, 
how does somebody with a computational bent dive into this world? So it's a really interesting thing. Um, I think early on, people thought you could be a computational biologist and sit back and look at somebody else's data. Mm. I remember in the, in the mid-1980s, when I was this mathematician coming into biology, I didn't yet generate data. But by 1987, it was already clear, just working on analyzing the first genetic map of the human genome, that unless, I guess, as the Marxists said, you controlled the means of production, <laughs> you would not really be able to do anything. And so by 1987, 1988, I realized that even though I was a pure mathematician by training who had not really worked at a laboratory bench, or at least not very much, I'd done a little bit in fruit flies, that I would just need to have a wet lab. And so I started building it out. Now today, thank goodness, you don't actually have to have a wet lab. But what you have to do is you have to be involved in the design of experiments. If you wait till the experiment's all designed, then you're not really able to get involved in the most interesting part, which is figuring out what question to ask and how. There aren't just clean data sets you should just pull down, because if they're like that, they've, they've already, already been analyzed. Everybody's been looked at everybody's it. Everybody's looked at it, yeah. What, what great computational people should do is learn to speak enough biology to start thinking about designing experiments. It turns out that is as theoretically cool as analyzing the data. So I think it means there's an investment. It's not tourism. There are a lot of great data sets you can pull off, image net and thing. You can, you can do a lot of great analyses. And there you can do just improving the mathematical and computational methods. If you really want to study life on planet Earth, learn how it gets done. And I think there are now more than enough biologists who are bilingual. They are biologists and speak computation, or they're computational biologists and they still speak wet lab, that it's easy in a way it wasn't. It used to be hard. Do you see a difference in which direction people are coming from? Well, thank goodness. So the NIH in the 90s, the National Institutes of Health in the 1990s, talked about wet biologists and dry biologists because... freeze-dried biologists. Freeze-dried <laughs> biologists. And, and these were considered different categories. Now, there are a lot of people who are trained at both. And the most powerful are people who are trained in mathematics and computation and in biology at the same time. I think, you know, I probably still subscribe to the, the classical mathematical view that you really have to learn mathematics young. It's hard to learn mathematics old. Um, where old is defined as, you know, in your mid-30s or something. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but we're so lucky. There are so many amazing young people who are learning both. It's no longer considered, the, you know, that you should do one or the other. Some of the best people around here are MDs who also studied a bunch of computation mm -hmm. and mathematics. It's so powerful because instead of the conversation being across a table, it's across the corpus callosum in somebody's brain. Mm -hmm. It's it's way cool to, to see people who think both ways. I think more generally, so much creativity comes from being able to look at the same thing two different ways or three different ways. And so I could not be more excited about this new generation that's coming along that natively speaks both. So you mentioned the fun is right at the stage when you're de designing an experiment. Yeah. 
Well, that's so, some of the fun. Of course, the surprises are fun at the other end too. Exactly, but you you know you kind of have to buy in early in order to yeah, be exactly. able to participate in the, in those surprises. But my question is, a lot of the experiments that you can do or might do are informed by the tools that are available to you to measure things. Yes. And what's interesting in terms of what's coming online with computation, with mathematical statistical tools, is we can imagine collecting data in different ways mm-hmm. because we know that at the very end we have tools like kind of a catcher's mitt that can you know catch a different type of data than you would ordinarily ever collect. But I haven't seen a lot of these types of experiments being done. So are there ah, any are there any of yes. those types that you're I excited call about? This design for inference. Design for inference. Design for inference. That in, in like the statistical inference sense? In, in the machine learning inference sense. Got it. That And it's a term, you know, I sort of made up maybe a year ago because any experiment you set up, you need to be thinking about what am I going to do with its results? Mm -hmm. How am I going to interpret it? Mm -hmm. And usually the answer there is I'm going to count things or take means or variances. However, it might be that I'm going to collect vast amounts of data in a way that's just become possible and be able to do even machine learning inference on it. And therefore, I would do something different in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. So I might collect vast amounts of data because I think I could interpret them by an inference method. So I see around the road many new experiments being designed only because we think we have inference methods for making sense of what would otherwise be a hopeless pile of data. This might be an aside that's like, I don't know how important this is to the people that would be listening, but some of those experiments are expensive. Yes. And you have to have a kind of hope or faith that what you're going to grab is going to be useful. And you have to have people that are funding those experiments. Mm -hmm. So the whole infrastructure of science has to kind of come together and believe that this fusion of two worlds is the right way to go. Yep. And I can imagine a lot of situations where it's not really clear. Like, for instance, in metabolomics, what if I propose to just buy one million molecules and put them through a mass spec so that I can predict the mass spectra of previously unknown small molecules? Like, that, that might be a very expensive experiment that the people evaluating those experiments... They might not kind of see where things are going. So how, how do you think about that? Well, it might not be a particularly good experiment. Mm. So as in anything, there is taste. Mm. There is good taste in what is a good question to ask and a good experiment to do. I can think of a lot of large data collection experiments to collect vast databases and that are just terrible mm. because they're not going to yield what you want. Uh, we look at some of the large data collection things that have been done, the Human Genome Project, projects to collect human genetic variation and its correlation across the genome, single-cell atlases. These are great because with taste, you recognize how much it will enable. You also recognize how good the data have to be. If the data are sloppy, you won't be able to draw any meaningful inferences or you'll draw bad inferences. So I won't, I won't cast dispersions on other things <laughs> that never really got off the ground but were proposed because they just weren't ripe yet or they weren't going to be generative enough of new things. You know, most big data collection experiments that you can propose shouldn't be done. And therefore, you have to learn how to, A, have the taste, and B, have some pilots and confirm that you're going to have power to see something. We often had a rule that we tried to do a 1% version of the project before we do the 100% version mm. of the project. It would show you that you, you could solve the data quality, you knew what the costs were, 
And if you designed it right, you could begin to see results. So there's still a tremendous amount of taste in this. You know, willy-nilly data collection isn't the answer, but I do think there's so many problems in biology where large-scale data can crack things open. But then it goes beyond that. I think this fusion that you mentioned is the new direction. I think we've had a conversation between biology and computational sciences. I think they're now going to merge. Mm. I think in the 1940s and 50s, the idea of molecular biology was proposed. That was a, once a new word that somebody made up. It was actually Warren Weaver at the Rockefeller Foundation made up the word molecular biology mm. to indicate a fusion between biology and chemistry and physics. And it gave rise to everything we think about today, DNA and the, and the genetic code and all these things. I think we're getting to the point now where to do the next stage of biology, it won't be enough to have the periodic tables. We need to start thinking about a programmable biology, biology in terms of programs. We need to think about someday we want to be able to write code. Mm. You know, you can write C++ code and it'll behave as you want. Well, you can't write D++ code in DNA today because it doesn't behave well. We need to be able to think in terms of understanding the programs of the cell, and we need to be able to think in terms of writing mm. programs for cells. There's kind of a generalization or a, a leveling up of statistical inference that's a little bit ignored called program induction. Oh, what's and that? A friend of mine, Matt Johnson, has worked in this, uh, also Roger Gross at the University of Toronto. And the idea is don't infer how many clusters there are, infer the program yes. that generated the data. Yes. So not Ooh. just some some structure that generated the data. You're sampling kind of randomly from different parts of the tree, but what is a program you can run that generates that data? So that might be the thing exactly that you're looking that, for is, is that's biological That's exactly the sort of thing that I'm talking about. Even though we're sitting here talking on a podcast, I'm going to say, will you send me that? <laughs> I will. I want, I want, to, I will, I want I to take will. a look at that because that captures what yeah. I'm talking about. And for the programs, that's what we've got to do. And we have a set of tools now between observational tools to look at what's going on, but also perturbational tools. We can tweak the programs. Yep. We can inhibit this, enhance that. And we, for the first time, could think about that kind of inference of programs. I want to switch gears and, and ask a question about, I guess there, there's kind of a thread that I saw, which is, you know, sometimes an idea needs to be born in a lab, it needs to be nurtured there. Mm-hmm. And academia really is the right way to grow an idea and, and share it. And other times, consortiums are the right place to grow an idea, or sometimes it's in a corporation. Sure. How do you think about an idea in its life cycle and, and really where it should live and, and who should be thinking or working on it? Well, look, I think in terms of public goods and private goods, what's brilliant about the way at least you know, American research has worked is we understand the power of those two things. A public good is something where the person who creates it can't appropriate all of its value. A private good is something where the person who makes it can appropriate most of the value. So, for example, I make a small molecule that's going to be a drug. I can put a patent on it, and that's a private good. I can get a lot of investment to put behind that because I can reap its value. On the other hand, an idea, a formula... You can't own ideas. You can't patent formulas. And so you can't 
raise private money to support it because you're not going to own the thing at the end. And that's why we as a society support public goods publicly. So we have this wonderful spectrum that goes from universities supported publicly, the federal government supporting research, government laboratories supporting research, all the way over to private goods. In biology, discover the basis of heart disease, hard to patent it. On the other hand, discover a drug to help treat heart disease and everything in between. And I think what makes a system work is to have that spectrum to go all the way from public goods to private goods. And whenever we think about anything here, we think about what's the right place to do it. Um, I think the Broad Institute is organized around the public goods. We recognize we have a responsibility to produce those things that are most important, whether or not there's a business plan attached to them. Now, when there is a business plan attached to something, it's often just better done by raising private capital. But I think it only works because we, we do the whole thing. I sometimes call this this thing the miracle machine, this amazing invention where that more than anyone in America created after World War II, where we have this this wonderful virtuous cycle between public and private goods. In biology, more so than other fields, or I'll just say engineering, some of the greatest discoveries were found in the sense that you can go to hot springs in Yellowstone. Yep. and sequence a, an organism and then observe that something about its life cycle works differently. And then proteins in its genome or proteins that kind of it, it uses function in an interesting way. And like PCR is an example mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. CRISPR is an example of that. So when we're discovering things that are derived from a living thing, how do you think about whether or not by default they should just belong to planet Earth as a whole or they should be something that we can kind of carve off and, and, and perfect and then make into a useful tool? Well... There's, there's no conflict between their part of planet Earth as a whole and you can make it into a useful tool. Mm-hmm. I think the, the question is, should you be able to patent nature? Mm. And the answer is no, absolutely not. Mm. And thank goodness in this country, the Supreme Court ruled in the breast cancer gene case mm-hmm. some years ago that you can't patent the breast cancer gene. I actually wrote an amicus brief to the Supreme Court on that subject, which was which was a topic of much discussion at the court's oral argument. And the court, 9 nothing agreed mm-hmm. that under U.S. patent law, you can't patent products of nature. But you can patent tools based on the products of nature. So it's perfectly fine to say um, CRISPR is a natural system. I can't mm-hmm. patent CRISPR. But I might be able to use CRISPR in a certain way to edit mammalian cells and patent that process. And indeed, my colleague here at the Broad Institute, Feng Zhang, showed that you could do that. And the Broad has patents on that. Other people have patents on that. I think the distinction about that is that whenever you have a discovery in nature, you can't invent around that. But when you make a tool, the patent on the tool actually encourages people to find a way around it and invent a new tool. So fundamental knowledge about nature, the fundamental workings of nature, even big databases of information about nature, I think all of that has to be freely available to as everybody. That is a public good. That is a public good. That's why when we sequenced the human genome with our colleagues, all of that was made freely available to everybody with no restrictions, no patents. It was even made available to the company that was trying to compete with us. We made it available to them because we were completely committed to the idea that that information has to be available to everybody. On the other hand, if there aren't patents around drugs, 
then when you invest in making a drug and $100 million in a clinical trial, well, somebody could swoop in and sell that without having made that investment, in which case you'd never make the investment. I think the way we have to understand this is understanding we're building a system to serve patients, to serve society. How do we organize it to generate knowledge and then generate useful tools? You, you mentioned you wrote an amicus brief for the Supreme Court on the topic of whether or not you can patent nature. You've been involved in public policy in many different ways. Presumably at some point you weren't and then you were. <laughs> what brought you to make that switch and how do you view it as part of your kind of professional responsibilities? The first thing I ever got involved in with public policy was in the late 1980s with DNA fingerprinting. I went to a scientific meeting at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on Long Island on what was then this new technology of DNA fingerprinting that might be used in the criminal courts. And at that meeting, some lawyers showed me some evidence that was about to be used in a murder trial in the Bronx and asked my opinion. And I looked at the x-ray films from the case and I said, this is schmutz. It's just terrible. The, 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 the evidence, the data were terrible. You know, if, if a student brought you these data, you'd say, go back and redo the experiment. Mm. And to make a long story short, I got involved in that case. I, I pro bono, in return for, for no, no payment, served as an expert witness in the case, got a bunch of other scientists to serve as expert witnesses in that. The court ruled that DNA fingerprinting was in principle admissible, but in practice had been done so badly as to be inadmissible. And then I went down to Washington and uh, met with the National Academy of Sciences and the FBI and convinced the FBI that if they ever really wanted to see DNA fingerprinting be useful, they should fund the National Academy study to set standards. And eventually, DNA fingerprinting came to have pretty rigorous standards. I am now still involved in the question that the rest of forensic science does not have standards like that, and they don't in many cases even recognize the need to have evidence that things work. They have many methodologies that are used today where there's actually no real demonstration, like not even a single paper that the thing works, yet they've been admitted in courts because historically they'd been admitted in courts, and the law places a lot of weight on precedent. So that was my first taste of, of policy. Over the years, I've gotten involved in different ways. When President Obama was elected, uh, he asked me if I would co-chair the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology for the White House, the advisory group to the President and the White House staff and the federal agencies. And I, I of course, said yes, and we ended up working on a huge range of topics. I co-chaired it with John Holdren, the President's Science Advisor. And worked on energy and climate and cybersecurity and manufacturing and whatever whatever the White House needed. And it was tremendously educational. So I think we all, as scientists and engineers, have an obligation to the society. So much of society depends on science and engineering, and it depends on it being done well, and it depends on being able to predict in advance where things are going. And, so in a uh, sense, the product of your research by and large, should be a public good, but also perhaps your expertise. Your expertise better a be a public, public good. good because who else are you going to turn to for important advice as to how to build a secure internet or how to prevent the next flu pandemic but scientists and engineers? And if we're not willing to devote 
a portion of our lives and our careers to helping the public good, then shame on us because you know, we're not going to have the society we want. So it should be part of And this is true whether you're in academia or in industry. The President's Council of Advisors had a number of people from industry as well. Eric Schmidt from Google was on it and Craig Mundy from Microsoft. Wanda Austin was on it. We had a whole variety of people from all sectors because they all understood that good public policy, good society, good economies, health and security depended on scientists and engineers being willing to give of their expertise. I can't imagine a better place to end it. <laughs> well, look, Alex, it's fantastic to be here and to talk to you. Eric, thank you so much for spending the time. It was a fascinating conversation. Pleasure. Eric Lander, president and founding director of the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. It was really cool to be able to talk with him. So for our listeners, you and I both attend this meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail, where everybody brings either a, a problem, so they state some problem that they think is important to solve, or some method, some solution, some technique. That's the nail and the hammer. So do you have a cool hammer or a nail to talk about today? I have a nail, which is a recent set of breakthroughs over the last uh, roughly decade in cancer, which centers around a field called cancer immunotherapy. Cancer immunotherapy, okay. At the highest level, what it's about is trying to use your immune system in order to fight cancer. And so this is actually a field that has had a long history. You know, and there are many examples where it became very clear that every day your immune system actually helps protect you from cancer. Every day. Yeah. Uh, well, so I mean, I, I guess I don't know how, I don't think anybody knows the rate at which cancers occur. Yeah, I just but, mean like often, right? That's, that's what's surprising to yes. me. So many people will go on immunosuppressants. Let's say you get a heart transplant or a kidney transplant, or people have immunologic diseases like HIV that impair their immune system. Right. And those people are at much higher rates of cancer. Really? So, yeah. So that was a very clear demonstration that the immune system is very important naturally to fight cancer. And the idea is that there's just some baseline rate of cancer formation and it just needs to be cleared out constantly? That's the hypothesis. Got it. Right. And, and there's this kind of belief that perhaps we are all cancering all the time and the immune system helps fight it most of the time, but obviously not all of it. For a long time, people have wondered, might it be possible to actually create therapies that rev up the immune system? that kind of make what your immune system does normally right. and have it work even more effectively. It's an interesting field that, you know, had been around for a long time. A lot of people worked on it. And I think it's fair to say that although there were some basic insights about the basic biology, it took a very long time before we actually got to drugs. And the first of these was for melanoma, a drug called CTLA-4. And it kind of showed that you could actually have this tremendous property of, in some sense, causing complete remission in people with wow. very advanced melanoma. And, and that wasn't a thing before. Exactly. I mean, right. so, you know, end-stage melanoma or metastatic melanoma is often a very devastating disease with very few treatments. And so the idea that there was this group of people that, again, you don't like to use the C-U-R-E word in right. cancer, but seem to have very, very strong response. But what was interesting was that it wasn't everyone, and it was a small subset of people. I think in the original trials, and in most trials, it's been somewhere between 20 and 40% of people have Got a it. very strong response. So it wasn't that it worked a little bit for a lot of people. No. It worked a lot for a little, exactly. a small amount of people. Exactly. Okay. And you start to see this in many different cancers. It starts to work. 
you know, lung cancer is another one or, or some forms of colon cancer. And so it's suddenly this kind of huge breakthrough and, you know, many companies, many drugs in the pipeline. Mm. But, you know, I think it's fair to say this is one of the biggest revolutions in cancer care of our lifetime. Really? Wow. Okay. So very exciting. And now what's also interesting is it's clear that behind the scenes, there's a really interesting and very, very important machine learning problem that many are working on and there's been good progress. So going back to this kind of, let's say, you know, 20 to 40% of people with a given cancer will respond. You said earlier that this pattern had happened for a bunch of different cancers. And does that mean that the same pattern of it working a lot for a few number of people was repeated again and again? Roughly. And actually, this is um, what's interesting is in general, and again, there are some exceptions that are very mysterious, but in general, the cancers where there seems to be the most effective are the ones with the highest mutation rate. Right. So melanoma has a very high mutation rate or lung cancer, again, which is due to carcinogens, you know, in smoke and things like that. And by mutation rate, you mean like if you take out the tumor, you sequence the tumor and you look at how many changes in the base pairs there are in in those cells, it's really high. Exactly. Okay, got it. So there were a few hints that kind of gave clues into what's now called the neoantigen hypothesis, which is really kind of amazing. But let me kind of walk through it. So the first hint maybe was. The idea that the cancers where there's the strongest response are the ones with the highest mutation rates. But then even within a cancer, there's something called tumor mutational burden, which is basically the amount of mutations you have. And people with high mutation rates are, and again, it's not a slam dunk predictor. It's by no means a perfect classifier. But people with higher rates are are more likely to respond. Got it. So the first simple model of count the number of mutations is actually, yeah. does an okay job. Yeah, much okay. better than random. Got it. And so... What this led to is the idea of, okay, so how does your your immune system in general fight cancer? So cancer is always the result of mutations to the genome. And one of the things that your immune system has evolved the ability to do is to expose what's inside the cell to the immune system. Mm. So for example, imagine a virus. How would the immune system find a virus that lives in a cell, right? The cell has the ability to kind of put little pieces of both itself and other things that Got might it. be inside of it. So it tapes like a surface. sign to the window, which is like, help. Yeah. Well, <laughs> okay. it, it does two things. It says, actually, that's a great analogy. I had never thought about it. It puts a sign on the window that says help, but it also puts a little bit of whatever might be badness. I see. Well, actually, uh, of everything inside of itself, including the bad stuff. Got it. And if you see both a help sign and something that doesn't look like you, uh-huh. right? So what's your... You barge in the door. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And that's what your immune system, I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing that your immune system does every day, which is to continuously survey every molecule in your body and figure out, is this me or not me? And if it's not me, is it something to worry about? So that's that what, really is an incredible like yeah. job that's constantly going on because there's a lot of molecules in me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I think that's, it is one of the most amazing things in the world. So if you imagine, you know, the hypothesis would be as these mutations happen, your body sees them as not me, right? right? Because it's different than the me that my yep. immune system learned and trained as me, right. right? So that's the kind of the belief is that this is how under the hood it works. But it turns out that of all the mutations that can happen in your genome, only a small fraction would ever get exposed to the immune system and exposed as not me. And it's a surprisingly hard problem to figure out which those mutations are. 
And so this has been kind of a, a burden for the field. So if you imagine like the test I talked about before, the tumor mutation burden, where you're just counting out the total number of mutations, some small fraction will be exposed as, again, I'm going to use the word neoantigen, mm -hmm. you know, new things that are not me that will get exposed to the immune system. And so the more mutations there are, the more of them there will be. Got but it. My confidence in any one is quite low. Right. This has been a really hard problem. One of the exciting developments, and there have been a lot of people on trying to train machine learning algorithms, was a good friend of ours, Brendan Bullock Sullivan, both of us know him quite well, who at the time was at a company called Gridstone, which is a GV company. He's actually now a member of the team at GV. Worked with some other people to first generate a training data set where they you know, sequenced a lot of tumors and did a lot of hard work to figure out which mutations actually got exposed to the immune system, and then built a machine learning model that actually turned out to be quite predictive. And so it was actually, it was published in Nature Biotech in the last roughly year or two. Very exciting work. But it is kind of the start of a much longer story of really trying to figure out how it is that the immune system does what it does of looking at self versus non-self right. and creating that classifier. Yeah, so what, every day. what he has right now, input is the mutations and the output is, you know, what are the neoantigens that will be presented yes. by those cells? Exactly. And I guess what I'm hearing you say is everything in between yeah. is still kind of up for research and up for kind of looking at more deeply. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the mechanisms by which how this happens, still unclear. Very right. important question that many people are working on. And of course, you know, the algorithm is not yet perfect, right, in terms of it right. doesn't give a perfect discrimination. But if you think about the deeper questions of how does the immune system classify, walk around every day and sort of see me versus not me, these are all like very sort of deep questions that sit at the interface between machine learning and immunology. That's absolutely fascinating. And one topic that I hope we can return to at some other point in time is kind of the last thing we touched on, which is you've got a model that's really predictive. Yeah. But you actually want to learn what it's learned. And that's something that's still oh. an area of active research. Oh, wow. All right. And so like, hey, how much could you learn about immunology by cracking open a tool that captured some essence of the problem because it's so able to predict so well? Because inside of there is something useful. Yep. Getting it out is not trivial. Even in the example of Brendan's work, there's a cool example of this where the model told them that some genes are naturally more likely to be presented to the immune system than others. As in like a baseline rate. Yes. So there's a bias for yes. some genes to be presented as, as antigens and, and others for not to be. Yeah. Okay. It was initially, again, you know, I, I'm not enough of an immunologist to know you know, whether or not there are good candidates for the mechanism by which that happens, at least to them, that was a very sort of interesting insight that came out of the machine learning. But in a future one, I would love to hear more about how you gain insight from a gamish of deep learning models. That would be, it would be really fun to talk about that. We will definitely revisit that. But I think that that wraps it up here for us for this episode for Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Filipakis. And I'm Alex Wilchko. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent official policy or the position of GV, Google, or any of their respective affiliates, including Alphabet. The hosts' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither GV nor Google nor any of their respective affiliates warrant their completeness or accuracy, and they should not be relied upon as such. Got a question or a comment? Email us at theoryandpractice at gv.com.